when a nation sees a church thriving and growing and living out their faith in the messiness and distraction of everyday life in a 21st century setting, they will pay attention. And we have the opportunity to model it for them. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. If you have your Bible with you this morning, can you turn with me please to Acts chapter 4. And as you're turning to Acts chapter 4, you'll find it on page 1696, page 1696 of the church Bible. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is, and that's a reference to Christ. He is the stone your builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. Now, remember we said Pentecost was a game changer because up to Pentecost, God would anoint an individual for a particular purpose or a project or for a season. And He anointed David, and you'll see it in others. But from Pentecost onward, you have a game changer in this sense. All that was accomplished at Calvary is applied at Pentecost. Now, let me say that again. It's important that you get it. Calvary was the climax of the sovereign, purposeful, eternal decrees of the Lord God Almighty. No greater moment in all of history than the cross. It's the center point. All of God's redemptive plans build to Calvary, then they flow from Calvary forward. What was accomplished at the cross was the salvation of humanity. Every tribe and tongue and nation, he died for the sin of the world. Forty days later, or fifty days rather, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes not just to anoint for a season, not as a temporary experience, but when Peter preaches the gospel, 
that Pentecost Sunday, God overwhelmingly, spectacularly, in a supernatural way, begins to call people to himself, convict them of their sins, and suddenly they realize the significance and value and gravitas of his love and his care and his concern for them. And he breaks into those lives. He brings them from spiritual death to spiritual life. And suddenly, they have a new appetite. They have new desires, new wants, new hopes, new purpose, new meaning in life. And now, for the first time, the Holy Spirit dwells within His children not simply anointing, not on a temporary basis, but He transforms them from the inside out. That's why it's so important. That's why it's a game changer. And how often have you heard on a Sunday morning when I've tried to make the point again and again and again that when the Holy Spirit breaks into a life and He convicts you of your sin and your need for Christ and His love for you, that's the breakthrough moment because the same moral and supernatural power that brought Christ back from the dead now lives within you through the power the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Within several days, Peter and John is going to the temple. God supernaturally breaks through in a mighty way. And in fact, at the end of chapter 3, Luke records this. More than 5,000 men now believed. That's not counting women and children. That's not counting children and grandchildren, but more than 5,000 men, 3,000 on Pentecost, now 5,000, and talk about a church being at the heart of the city in downtown Jerusalem in the first century. For the first time, the Holy Spirit was at work, and it was impacting the entire community. The society and the culture looking on were what? What does the passage say? Were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. What was going on? The temple guards couldn't make head nor tail of it. So the only thing they could do was behave as they always do. So they arrested Peter and John, took them off to prison. They spent the night in prison. They tried to calm down the crowds. And the next day, they appear before the Sanhedrin. Now, let me pause. Have you ever found yourself in the situation where maybe someone in your neighborhood, a colleague at work, has asked you some tough questions about your faith? How did you respond? What did you say? Now, in Acts chapter 4, first couple of verses that we didn't read. When Peter and John begin to talk about the resurrection, when they begin to talk about the difference that Christ makes and the impact he has on the soul, what we discover is this, that those who were listening were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Folks, please understand the significance of that. It's not that they were teaching morals and ethics. 
Morals and ethics are important. We'd never seek to minimize them. But what they were saying was this, that in Jesus of Nazareth, God himself broke into our world, and he died for our sins in order that he would change us and transform us and renew us, in order that we could have intimacy with God and know him and walk with him all our days, in order that we might be cleansed and renewed and refreshed and know him in all of his wonder and majesty and glory. He can be known. And it was what confirmed by the resurrection. People do not rise from the dead. It was a supernatural act of God. And it was beginning to disturb people. And it was beginning to disturb people for this reason. And the reason was this. Now, hold on. Wait a minute. We come to the temple regularly. We give our pennies when we buy lambs and doves and pigeons for sacrifice. We wear the proper clothes. We eat kosher food. What are you talking about a resurrection? Wasn't all that we learned in the past enough? And here is Peter and John saying, all that you learned in the past points towards Christ himself. He is the fulfillment of all of God's eternal purposes and plans in the past. And that's the point Peter is making. And he then goes on to say this, and why were people disturbed? Not only were they preaching the gospel, not only was it impacting lives, but lives were being changed. Because when you get to the point of fully, unconditionally submitting and surrendering your heart and mind and soul and your whole being to Christ, when you do that, your life takes on a new shape. You have new desires. You have a new meaning, a new purpose. And it means this, that prayer becomes a priority. Worship is important. You cannot wait to spend time with God in prayer. And he sovereignly shapes and fashions your life and calls you into that ever-increasing relationship with him. And you also discover this, that those hopes and dreams and desires means you are no longer living the way you used to live. Now, having said all of that, let's get back to the neighbor asking you the tough question. And here is the question. In some sense, I want to ask you to forgive me for asking the question. I'm not raising a sensitive, controversial issue for the sake of it. But what if someone you know and know kind of reasonably well, able to have a conversation with them, says, now, you go to church. I've heard you saying to some of your friends, I'll pray for you. I know you go Sunday mornings. But I have one or two questions. And my first question is this. Christian people, and the church has said down through the decades, that as a church, you have no time for racism in any shape or form, period. You empathize with people who are being, someone has been biased against them, dismissing them because of their ethnicity, dismissing them because of the color of their skin. That's a good thing. But we now live in a day and age where people are choosing 
to enter into same-sex relationships, a homosexual lifestyle. I don't hear the church supporting them. I don't hear the church getting alongside them and saying, well done. I don't hear the church empathizing with them. I don't hear the church patting them in the back and saying, go for it. We support your choices. Doesn't that seem a little hypocritical? You want to support one thing, but you condemn another just offhand like that? What is going on? And then the person may take it a step further and say, incidentally, aren't we mature, sophisticated adults able to lay out our own moral boundaries? We don't need a book from the first century to tell us how to live. Quite frankly, religion seems out of place in a 21st century setting. It seems primitive, judgmental, narrow-minded. There is nothing to say in a 21st century setting. It's divisive. Hold that thought. Come back to it in a moment. Now imagine you were going to visit a friend you hadn't seen for 20, 25 years. And you are driving up to Charlotte or Atlanta or a town you are, for the most part, unfamiliar with. And you've got the directions, you get there in good time, you're having a meal at their home, it's just wonderful to catch up and hear about their children and their grandchildren and the things in their life that are important. You are reminiscing about college friends and you're having just a wonderful time. Then you look at your watch and you realize, oh, it's 10.30. We've really overstayed our welcome. We've got to go. Let's continue to stay in touch. We've had such a good night. Get out into the car. You're driving away, and you know from the directions that second and the right will take you on to the interstate. You're fine. But you're so busy chit-chatting, you take first right. Then, of course, if you're a male and you're driving, there is no possibility you're going to stop and ask for directions. None. Because males have this built-in direction sensor, and it's, it never, never fails. So there's no point even stopping to ask. And then you realize you're getting further and further away from the interstate. You find yourself in an inner city situation. In fact, you are driving along dark streets. There is an odd street lamp, but not too many. And the car begins to splutter and cough, and you look down. Oh, no gas. So, you do what males do. You pull over, you go around, you flip open the bonnet, you have a look because you are praying that there's a big sign that says, plug this back in. And it's not there. And you've just, you don't know what to do. And then you're aware of footsteps. And they're getting closer and closer and closer. And you look up, and it's not just one person. It's five of them, all male. It's now 11.15 at night. You're stranded in the middle of a street that you're unfamiliar with. Will it cause you to sigh with relief if you discover those five men are coming from a men's Bible study. Will you sigh with relief? Yes, of course you will. Of course you will. 
Religion matters to character. It matters to honesty. It matters to who you are, and it shapes and forms who we are. And to say it doesn't matter because somehow this generation knows better than every previous generation is simply a nonsense. We do not go in for what is known as chronological snobbery, that this generation has got it right, every previous have got it wrong. And of course, as a church, we're going to say, good night, what were we thinking? Of course you've got it right. And we throw out 2,000 years of belief. No. We believe that faith is crucial and important. It's the essence of who we are. Let's get back to the controversial one. And remember what the controversial one is. Richard, the church is happy to say you're against racism in all of its form, period. And yet you will condemn people who adopt a same-sex lifestyle. What on earth are you doing? Surely that's hypocrisy. Surely it's hypocrisy. Really, that's what you want us to do in a 21st century environment? Come on. Let me suggest this. The reason Christian people say we will not, we will not support racism in any way, shape, or fashion because a person's skin color and their ethnicity is to them sacred, period. And we don't get, if I can use a well-known quote, to judge an individual by the color of their skin. We are focused on the content of their character. Amen? Amen. We do. Now, when it comes to sexual lifestyle choices, as Christian people, we say this, that our approach to sexuality and marriage and lifestyle choice is this, that for Christians, marriage is sacred. We don't consider sexual intimacy as no big deal. We don't get to consider it as a casual thing. We know this, that when two people are married, we are convinced that the biblical teaching that lies at the very center of our culture and our society is important. We believe that when two people join together in what we call holy matrimony, it is for the full expression of love between a husband and a wife. It's not to be entered into for selfish motives or lightly or in a casual manner, but it is lifelong commitment. So help us God. And it is sacred and it defines who we are. And whenever someone else is involved in an extramarital affair, and please hear me when I say this, I have sadly had to deal with it too many times. When someone will come to me and say, I don't know what I was thinking, and the point was, you weren't thinking. You simply had a desire, a proclivity. You wanted to do something, and you felt free to do it. Stop it. Stop it. Remember your marriage vows, their sacred vows, not to be taken lightly. When the temptation comes for a single person to be involved in sexual intimacy with an individual, 
what is the best advice we can give? Because you feel it and feel strongly enough doesn't give you license to act on those feelings. Doesn't give you license to act on those feelings. Those feelings are to be reined in because within the bonds of marriage, that intimacy and activity is so much more fulfilling. It brings so much more contentment when there is deep abiding commitment and love, and it gets sweeter as the years go on. It's not a casual thing. We treat it as a sacred part of who we are. And that's why we will never, as Christian people, say that sexual intimacy in a casual manner is okay. It is not okay. And when you pick up the pieces of it, it is often a disaster and leaves people scarred for many years to come. Now, folks, please hear me as I try and wrap all of this up together. There is out there in our culture and in our society a crying need for authenticity and credibility in lifestyle. Our nation is looking at the church to ask, are they demonstrating holiness and purity and righteousness? Is it real or is it simply lip service to what it should be? And when they see genuine, authentic, credible Christian lives committed to Christian marriages, raising children in a healthy atmosphere of love and nutrition and cultivating within them adulthood in all of its wonder and complexity, then the nation will take note. Folks, they are longing to see the real thing. And more than that, there is a spiritual and moral warfare for our culture. And if we as Christian people will not step up and say, this is the way, walk in it, the future is not bright. It's not determined yet. And we as the church can stand firm and shape that future, or we can allow the radical, rampant, secular culture to dismiss us and marginalize us and push us out of the picture. What will it be? In the first century, they were ready to say, Christ has impacted my life. He's transformed my life. It's a wonderful life. It is spectacular to have intimacy with God. We don't always get it right. We're not always good at what we do, but my goodness, we are trying. We're not the people we used to be. We're not the people we want to be, but my goodness, we're willing to try. My goodness, we're willing to try. And when a nation sees a church thriving and growing and living out their faith in in the messiness and distraction of everyday life in a 21st century setting, they will pay attention. And we have the opportunity to model it for them. If the church is quiet, the future is not good. If, on the other hand, we stand firm with grace and tenderness and a winsomeness about our lifestyle, it will make a massive, massive difference. Now, let me close with a couple of sentences, and I'm conscious of the time, and I will wrap this up. It's this. For all you have heard me deal with the controversial issues this morning, I also need you to remember 
this, because it's easy to remember the controversy and forget what I'm about to say, but let me say this in clear and unambiguous terms. In our culture today, Christians will be looked on and are looked on as narrow-minded, homophobic, judgmental people. We have an opportunity to say this and say clearly, we will never intentionally seek to dismiss or demean someone whose lifestyle we disagree with because Christ would not do it. He would not humiliate. He would not embarrass. He would not demean. He would disagree, and he would disagree with love and grace. And then he would seek to show the love and grace of Christ to those who disagreed with him. We are called to do no less. The end of the passage we read this morning said this, they were impacted by those men who were unschooled and they noted they had been with Jesus. May that be said of us as a church at the heart of this city who's seeking to impact our culture, who's seeking to influence the society around us, but let us do it with men and women of grace who are winsome and prayerful and Christ-centered. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this challenging passage this morning. Thank you for its power and its challenge to us. Enable us, please, to live for you in these days, to model for people who are searching for you genuine, authentic faith, to be your people at the heart of this city in a 21st century context. Father, sustain us by your grace. Enable us to live for you in the messiness and distraction of everyday life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Join us Wednesday evenings at First Presbyterian Church in downtown Greenville. Our Wednesday Advantage program includes an affordable meal and elective classes for adults with Bible study and music for youth and children. Visit firstpresgreenville.org or call 235-0496 for more details.